Hello, and glad we have a chance to come together for another study in the Gospel of John. I'm Colin, and today we continue in chapter 3, where we find John and his disciples baptizing not far from where Jesus was doing the same. As John's disciples question him about the ministry of Jesus, he shares with them a few important truths. Anything received comes from God. Jesus is superior to all things and must be first in our lives, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So what does it mean to reject Jesus? Well, today, Pastor Brian will share with us why unrepentant sin separates us from God. But the good news is that God has made a way. Again, we're in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 36. So we carry on in our journey through this gospel of John. Our theme, you remember, is life in his name. And so we're picking up the story actually after the meeting with Nicodemus and the discussion of the necessity of the new birth. And those, those were the things that were earlier in the chapter. And, and let me just remind us that the new birth, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's talking about a spiritual birth. Nicodemus didn't quite understand that. He it was, what, do I have to go into my uh, mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, you need to be born from above. A spiritual birth that comes about through putting one's faith and trust in Jesus. So that, that's the backdrop. Jesus, of course, the text reminds us that he's God's one and only son who would be lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the son of man would be lifted up on the cross, making atonement for sin, that whoever looked to him, whoever believed in him, would have eternal life. So after these things, Jesus then departed from Jerusalem and went uh, to an area along the Jordan where John was continuing to baptize. And so that's where we pick up our story. And so after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And there John describes the area. And it was there that an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So even though John the Baptist had been pointing people to Jesus, there were still those that were considering themselves the disciples of John. They were, they were following John. And they came and they said to John, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, here are just some hardcore loyal followers of John. 
It's like that, that guy that you talked about, you know, we don't care about him. We're your disciples. That, that's pretty much the attitude that they have at this point. They're, they're a little uh, overzealous for John. It kind of reminds me of a story back in, um, I think it's in Exodus or Numbers, where um, the, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a number of people in the camp of Israel and they begin to prophesy. And Joshua, he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, these guys are prophesying too. And Moses says, oh, Joshua, are you zealous for me? And he was. And Joshua's mind, no, Moses is the prophet. What are these guys doing prophesying? And, and Moses, his response is great. He says, oh, Joshua, would to God that all God's people would prophesy. And this, this is the same sort of thing. The disciples, they're, they're just zealous for John. People are going after that other person, that, that one that you talked about. And he is baptizing. Everyone's now going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given then from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is, and, and it is now complete. So John says, no, look, this is the, I want people to go to him. That, that's the purpose that I came. I'm not the bridegroom. I already told you that. I'm the friend, I'm the best man. And I am rejoicing to see what's happening. But, but John says this that I think is worth noting. He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And John just has a beautiful perspective. You know, John understands, if you will, he understands his lane. It's important that we that we understand the calling that God has given us and that we, we function within that calling. And that we do that faithfully and, and we don't necessarily worry about what everybody else is called to do. This, this, is, this is a place where we get hung up sometimes as Christians. We're doing something, but then we look over and we see somebody doing something else and we're like, hey, well, Lord, how come I can't do that? We, we like that lane over there. I, I want to get into that lane. And the wisest thing is to stay in your lane. Stay, stay in that place. That's where the fruit is going to come. That's where the, the blessing is going to come. So John understood that. And that, that's pretty much what he's communicating here. But then after he says that joy is mine and it is now complete, he says this. He says, he must become greater I must become less, or he must increase, and I must decrease. And again, what a beautiful perspective that John has here. And, and this is a word 
for all of us, really. But I think, first of all, I think of those who are the public servants of Christ. All of us would do well to adopt John's conviction and make it the goal of our life and ministry. Our objective is not to increase our popularity, uh, not to build our platform. Our objective is to see Jesus exalted. He needs to increase. I need to decrease. I'll tell you, if if, uh, church leaders would just really lay hold of this as a motto and a goal, uh, the, the witness of the church in society would be much better than it is today. There, there's all kinds of examples in the culture right now of people who have really, whether they intended to, to do it or not, initially at least, that this is where they sort of ended up. They, they ended up uh, with a lot of self-promotion and um, increase for themselves rather than decreasing and having Christ increase. And now it's coming back to haunt them. This is happening many, many places in the church. But, it, but it's not only applicable to church leaders. It's applicable to all of us, right? This is the goal. That Jesus would increase. That we would become more like him And less like who we naturally are. Our selfish, sinful selves would would continue to diminish. And Christ's image would emerge from us. That, That was John's perspective. And so... That brings us to verse 31. Now, verse 31, again, this is one of those places where it's difficult to see where one voice ceases and another voice picks up. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last time. Even with John 3.16, there are some that think that Um, rather than the words of Jesus, which we commonly think of them as, these are probably the words of the Apostle John. I said, it doesn't really matter in the end. They're all the words of God. They're the words of the Holy Spirit. We went with them being the words of Jesus. So, So some would see verse 31 as just a continuation. John the Baptist is just continuing what he's been saying. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then He, from there, goes on and says, uh, the one who comes from above is above all. I think for sure here, the transition moves to another voice. I, I think here we have now the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel. He is now making a comment. And, and if to, to look closely at the text, I think what we see is that he is now, John is now going to, for a moment, he's going to give a bit of a contrast 
between Jesus and John. Now, at this time, the time that John wrote the, um, the gospel, nobody knows the date for sure. Some people dated all the way at about 90 AD. Other people um, dated before 70 AD because it, it appears that the temple is still standing. So we don't really know the actual date. But the point is that there were probably not many people still identifying with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has already passed off the scene. But what John is wanting us to understand is this, this bigger point that Jesus is the ultimate voice of God to the world. So he says, the one who comes from above is above all, that's a reference to Jesus, the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. So the one who comes from above is Jesus. The one who speaks of the earth is John. Now, of course, John was a prophet, but nevertheless, he was still a mere man and he still had, to some degree, a... Uh, a very earthly perspective on things. And maybe you remember uh, John, as the text even um, tells us here, that all of this uh, is happening before John was cast into prison. So remember, the other gospels tell us that John is arrested at a certain point and he's finally executed, he's martyred. But remember, there's that point where John... In his trial, he begins to question whether or not he was actually right about Jesus. And so he sends some of his followers to Jesus. He's in jail. He sends his followers to Jesus. And, and they come with this question from John. Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? So it just the point is just to show that John, even though he was a prophet for sure, he is still has those weak human elements where Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior because he is the one from above. He is the one from heaven. And as we carry on reading there, notice what it says. It says that uh, God gives the spirit to him, speaking of Jesus, without limit. So John experienced the Spirit of God, came upon him from his mother's womb to be that one who would go before the face of the Lord and prophetically prepare the way. But there was a, a limited measure of the Spirit upon John. Jesus, we are being told here, there, there is no limit to the Spirit upon him. In other words, he comes in the fullness of the Spirit, and those who believe that, it says that they, they certify that God is, NIV says truthful, but I think uh, better that God is true. And again, what John is talking about is when a person believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the, that 
authenticating moment where one comes to know the truth about God. One comes to know that the testimony of God, the reality of God is true. That, that's the place where that reality uh, comes into focus. When one believes in Jesus, that's when everything changes. That's when suddenly God becomes real. No longer just theoretical, but now, no, God is real. This is really what the writer of Hebrews wants us all to know. Because Hebrews, the, the epistle to the Hebrews here in the New Testament, it begins with these words. It says, God, who at various times in different ways spoke in time past to our ancestors by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, or he's spoken to us in his son. So what is the author telling us? He's telling us that, basically he's telling us that God's word to humanity is Jesus. Jesus is the, the ultimate. He is the final revelation. God's message to the world is not a religion. Oh, we, we cannot forget that. Not a religion. Not a philosophy. Not a set of morals or an ethical standard. His message is we we preach a person. Man, Christians today are so caught up with issues. And, and everything is an issue. And we're talking about issues. And we're debating issues. And we're contending with people over issues. And there's more and more issues every day we're confronted with. And I'm not saying that issues aren't important. But we have got to remember our message is first and foremost, we are presenting a person. We're not presenting a better way of life or a greater philosophy or the ultimate religion. We are presenting, we're called to present to people a person. Professor Karen Jobes she put it like this. She wrote, the overarching message of the book of Hebrews is that God has spoken to the people of planet Earth and God's word to us is that the life, death, and resurrection of his son in the first century is the fullest and final message to humanity. Oh, we, we can't lose sight of that. And I'm saying this because I'm afraid that in some ways, Christians, many Christians have lost sight of this. And so our message as we go out into the culture is just getting sucked into the culture wars, if you will. And, and our message just tends to revolve around those things. And I'm, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be pushback against things and all that. that's, that's, that's 
fine to a certain extent. But if it leads us to move away from what the real message is, the primary message, then that's when it becomes trouble. I mean, I think of all of the, the societal issues that we're dealing with now and all of the voices on, on either side of the issue that are just in constant conflict. And, and there's no... There's not even any middle ground. It's just everyone's out for, for total scorched earth, complete annihilation of your opponent. But you know, here, here's the interesting thing. When you preach Jesus you, you kind of cut through all of that other stuff. Now, obviously, people don't like you preaching Jesus either, but, you know, I have a, I have a conviction that if I'm going to get beat up or persecuted or thrown in jail or whatever, it's going to be because of Jesus. I, I'm going I'm to go down swinging for Jesus. I, I'm not going to go down swinging for a cause. But the thing is, if, if we preach Jesus, even though, of course, there is pushback, it's a different kind of pushback. But when we preach Jesus, there's also, there's a power that's not there when I'm preaching issues. There's the power of God. There's the, the reality of the Spirit of God working. And I've seen it over and over again. I know it's true that you can cut through so much stuff and even the hardest heart can be pierced when the message is Jesus. So let's not forget that. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's remember that Jesus is the message of the church. We preach Christ and him crucified, the apostle Paul said. And of course, he said that in a day when there were Plenty of issues that he could have addressed. We preach Christ and him crucified. Now, this brings us to the last two verses of the chapter. For the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. So again, the emphasis on, on the son. And then verse 36. This is what I, I want to delve more deeply into today. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath, or God's wrath, remains on them. Now, this is kind of taking us back to where we were in our previous study. And there was so much to cover. We didn't have time to, to address it all, but I wanted to kind of circle back around to some of the things that we were talking about last time. And maybe you remember we were talking about these hard issues of judgment and God's wrath and things like that. And, and so it's interesting that John, who, again, I think it was probably John at least who was um, from, say, 
verse uh, 19, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, people love darkness rather than light, uh, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So John, in the very closing verse here of this third chapter, he, he comes back around to that with this statement in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And so the words that he uses, these words are referring to those ideas, the idea of life and the idea of wrath or judgment. So when we read in the chapter, perish, condemned, wrath, these words are reminders that God is righteous and will judge evil. That, that's what those words are reminding us of. And again, this is something that we, we can't lose sight of for our own sanity's sake, but we can't lose sight of it either for the message even that we bring is a double-edged sword. It is a message of light and life and hope and love for those who respond, but it is a message of condemnation and judgment for those who reject. Paul put it this way. He said, to some we are the aroma of life, and to others we are the stench of death. And that all depends on how one responds to, to the message. So, make no mistake about it. Regardless of how unpopular the idea of a judgment is in the modern world, especially the Western world, it is nevertheless a reality that will one day become crystal clear. You know, we, we are really living at a time where people just, they have so dismissed the idea that there is a judgment and some do it through atheism. Some just say, well, you know, there's not even a God, so of course there can't be a judgment. And others do it not necessarily by embracing atheism, but embracing an idea of God that just says, you know, God is love, which means that uh, he doesn't really care what we do or how we live. None of that really matters. He just loves us regardless. And basically, he doesn't mind that we just go about our lives doing whatever we want. It doesn't matter to him. And both things are delusional. Atheism is delusional and that perspective of God is delusional as well because the Bible is clear that some will perish, that some are condemned, that evil will be judged. And, and as I said, it's... it's it's where we can gain some peace of mind in that we know that those who perpetrate evil on others will not always get away with it. That, that's, a, that's a comfort. That's a consolation. So, these words remind us. 
that God is righteous, he will judge evil. And then the words love and gave, he gave his one and only son, should not perish, not be condemned, have eternal life. These are reminders that God loves all people and wants to save people rather than judge them. So we have both things side by side here in these words of Jesus and of John. So he says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him is another translation or here for God's wrath remains on them. So what does that mean? God's wrath remains on them. And notice who we're talking about. We're talking about those who reject. That's what he says clearly. Those who reject the son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on them. So what does that mean? God's wrath remains on them. I'm going to get to that in a second, but first I want to address this other question. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Now, it's it stated here, those who reject are the ones who are going to suffer the wrath. Now, what about those who haven't rejected necessarily because they've not heard? So, so how do we understand? This is a big question, right, that people have been asking for a long time. What, what about, and, and sometimes this is an argument against God or the idea of a loving God or a fair God. What about the person that's never heard? Well, in one sense, we could say, and absolutely, certainly, no question about it, there are people that have never heard, not only have they never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. There are people in the world today that have never heard of Jesus and therefore have never heard the gospel. But the question is, what have they heard? What have they heard? I remember years ago, um, a man named Frank Drown. Frank and his wife. Um, Frank and what was his wife's name? What? Marie. Marie. Thank you. <laughs> Frank and Marie Drown. They were, they were missionaries in uh, Ecuador. And, and actually, the more famous missionaries uh, that we would know about would be um, Jim Elliott. And Elizabeth Elliott, remember Jim Elliott, was part of those, that group of men that in uh, 1956, they were martyred in um, Ecuador. And um, the book, Through Gates of Splendor, came as a result of that. Well, Frank was a friend of theirs who worked in a, in a bit of a different location among a different tribe. And he was the one who... Uh, actually was on the scouting team that found the bodies of those five men that were martyred. So that, that's Frank Drown. So he lived 40 years, I think it was, in um, Ecuador, uh, among the Alca, or um, that, that's the, the name that they got. But, but anyway, Frank, I remember him speaking one time, and he asked this question. 
he asked the question about those native peoples who lived in a, what we would think of as sort of a prehistoric environment. He asked this question. He says, what do they know about God? And here was his answer. A lot more than you would think. I thought, wow, that was fascinating. A lot more than you would think. Now, I've got eight minutes to finish this. <laughs> okay, so what do we know? Well, first of all, we're talking about those who have never heard the gospel. First of all, let's just for one minute comment on original sin. Original sin. The Bible teaches that everybody is born into sin. That is what is called original sin. We have inherited a sin nature from our ancestors going back to Adam, who was created originally, created in the image of God, in fellowship with God, alive in the spirit. Adam revolts against God. He spiritually dies, and he passes that spiritually dead condition onto his descendants. That is the doctrine of original sin. We're born into the world as sinners. But not only are we born into the world as sinners, we have personal sins that we do begin to commit intentionally, even knowing that uh, there are things that we shouldn't do. So this is everybody. Every, every human being is both a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. Remember, John told us people love darkness rather than light. That's the true condition of human beings. So we've got that. But then we have general revelation. So what have people heard? A lot more than you think. That was Frank's point. They, nature, general revelation refers to nature, basically. Creation. They heard creation speaking to them. They lived in the jungle. They looked at the animals. They looked at the plants and the rivers and the fish and all of those things and the sky. And, and they, they concluded without a preacher, there's some sort of a creator. Somebody made this. And that is the intention of general revelation, that everybody would look around at the created world and draw the logical conclusion that somebody made this. And looking in a mirror and drawing the conclusion, somebody made me. So there is general revelation, there is creation, and then there is also conscience. So universal reality is, is everybody has within them a moral code. And with minor adjustments, it's essentially the same all around the world. And it's not constructed by their cultural environment, although that's what we would hear people say today. It, it's not, because they come from completely different environments and backgrounds, religion, no religion, all different kinds of things. But has, has, everyone has just pretty much the same sense that being a 
courageous is a good thing. Being a coward is a bad thing. Murdering somebody just for the fun of it is a bad thing. Killing people might be allowed for certain reasons, but there has to be a valid reason and so forth. This is, this is universal. And so everybody has within them this recognition that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. It might vary to some degree from culture to culture, but everybody has it. It's intuitive. It's, it's universal. And so this is, this is what we have heard. And so this is the light that everybody has. Now, response to light brings more light and more light is needed for salvation. So just recognizing there's a creator is not going to save me. Just recognizing that there's right and wrong, so there must be a, a, a lawgiver, that's not going to save me. There, there has to be something further. That's where the gospel comes in. But how does one go from the revelation of creation and conscience, conscience to a revelation from the gospel? Well, I think the Bible, what the Bible says is that those who respond to the light that's given them, more light is then brought for them. So if I never respond to the light around me, then there's going to be no further light given. But once I begin to respond to the light that I've been given, then more light comes. A perfect example of this is a man named Cornelius. We read about him in Acts chapter 10. He's a Roman centurion. He comes under the influence of, of the Jewish faith. He begins to see something in Judaism that he admires. He starts to offer prayers and things like that and give alms. And then what happens? One day, an angel appears to him and says, call for this man, Simon, whose name is Peter. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's going to come to you, and he's going to tell you words by which you and your family can be saved. Cornelius responded to the light that he had, and more light was given. So it seems to me like that's the picture that the Bible paints. Now, we, we know that God has commanded the gospel to be preached to every person. So with that command, we can sort of then conclude, well, must be that everybody needs the gospel, must be that everybody is perishing. That's why, that's why the gospel needs to be preached to everyone. So from all we know, here's my conclusion on this. From all we know, the one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that we could never take the position that we shouldn't be concerned about those who have never heard. So we could never take that position. Say, oh, it doesn't matter. We don't need to do missions. We don't need to, that, that doesn't matter. We, we could never take that position. Um, I don't know that we could finally conclude that they are condemned all of them who have never heard of Jesus or his gospel, but we certainly cannot conclude that they will be saved. I think there, there is a place where there's a bit of uncertainty here. 
So what we know from all that we've considered seems to me to lead to the conclusion that those who die having never heard of Christ do perish because of the revelation, the things that they, they have heard. There might be other factors, but they have not been revealed to us. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know. But what I do know is that God has commanded all people everywhere to turn from their sin and to turn to him. And he's called us to preach the gospel because people are perishing. And if there's something different in the end that works out that people that never heard of Jesus end up being saved, hallelujah. That's fantastic. If that's, if that's what God's doing, I'm all for that. But, but I don't know for sure. But, but what I do know is that those who reject the wrath of God remains on them. So there are untold millions of people that have and continue to reject Christ. They've, they've heard the message. It's gone beyond the creation around them. It's gone beyond the conscience. They've heard it. And they reject it. And it says that the wrath of God remains on them. And remember, John said, the one who does not believe is condemned already. And so what, what does all of this mean? Well, let me remind you of a couple things. Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. That's our natural condition. And he also says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is an interesting thing. He says the wrath of God is being revealed presently. How is the wrath of God presently being revealed? The present way the wrath of God is revealed is experienced by God withdrawing his presence and giving people over to their depraved nature. This, this, is, this is the present manifestation of the wrath of God. God withdraws himself. Now, let's not forget, even when he does that, he's still so gracious that he gives common grace. And he sends the Holy Spirit in to try to turn people from darkness to light. But he has withdrawn himself, and the further people go into their rebellion and their rejection of him, the further he's pushed out and the deeper humans go into their depravity, there is a judgment that is the, it's the natural consequence of that. And I think that's what we see happening today. We're seeing the wrath of God revealed in the proliferation of sin, which is coming out of the depraved heart of human beings. The full wrath of God will be God separating himself from people entirely and eternally. Jesus described that as outer darkness. 
And so that is the, that is the destination of those who reject. But whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes, and of course, this is what God wants, and that's why he sent his Son. Is God a God of wrath and judgment? Yes. Is God a God of love? Yes. What does God prefer to do? Judge or forgive? He prefers to forgive. He's made that crystal clear. But the ball is in our court, so to speak. God has done everything. He's moved in our direction by sending his son. And now he calls us to respond. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And let me just break that down as we end. Spiritually brought to life, reconciled to God, welcomed into God's family, the promise of his presence and power and love and goodness guiding us through life and leading us into eternity. That's, that's what God wants. That's what the one who is from above came to reveal to us. This is what Jesus, God's one and only son, came into the world for, that we might believe in him and have life, that we might embrace him as a person, a living person who is here today, and if there's anyone with us that has not embraced him and has not responded to that, that conviction of the spirit of that gospel, today is the day to do that. And the bread and the cup up here, they remind us of those very things that we're talking about because they speak to us of the death of Jesus, his great love, the body that's broken, the bloods that shed. And so for us as believers, we're gonna partake of that and we're gonna just... Thank God that we are not under judgment, but we've come into life. And, and if you're anywhere other than that place, then you can do that today as well. By just acknowledging, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I can't save myself. I can't live up to God's standard. Is there someone that can help me? Yes. Let me introduce you to Jesus. The one that God sent into the world. Lord, we thank you that these things are the truth. And we rejoice in the truth. We thank you that you have brought us out of the darkness Lord, even when we love darkness instead of light, Lord, you persisted and you wooed us and you drew us. And oh, how we thank you for that. And Lord, you did the unthinkable thing by giving your life in place for us. And so as we receive the bread and the cup today, may you meet us. The living Jesus, would you meet us here? Lord, if anyone is in that place where they have yet to receive you. May they open their hearts to receive you today. 
Amen.